This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. You may have noticed I sound a little bit different. I'm sitting on a folding chair in my bedroom closet. Right above my head, there's a metal bar that runs the width of the space. Two weeks ago, it was used to hang my clothes. This week, I've draped a blanket over it. It's a makeshift home studio. In the past two weeks, many lives have been turned upside down by the novel coronavirus and the disease it causes, COVID-19. And we're going to talk about that on this episode. If you're expecting to hear a conversation about PDPM, join us in two weeks. Last week, as many of us adjusted to changes in our lives, I began calling CSD professionals. I spoke to those working in healthcare, schools, academia, and private practice. They shared with me how their work lives were changing because of COVID-19. Today, I'm going to bring you some excerpts from those conversations. Later in the program, we'll hear from an SLP who shares tips for facilitating conversation while wearing a surgical mask and tells the way COVID-19 is directly and indirectly intersecting with her work in New York City. I'll be sharing information on the many resources ASHA is making available to its members and how you can find support at this time. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. The first voice we'll hear comes from Aaron Carver. Aaron works for a skilled nursing facility in the state of Washington. Last week, I asked Aaron about being so close to the first area to be hit by the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. and about what is currently happening in the skilled nursing facility where she works. Well, the first big change is our front door is now locked all the time. So instead of just walking in, I have to be buzzed in. And then before I can clock in, we have to go and take our temperature and record that. And then if we've had any symptoms or anything, we have to go talk to the infection control nurse. And she would, of course, just send us home. Erin says recently the facility stopped using group treatment. She says that wasn't a hard adjustment for her. But there have been other challenges. It's more challenging, like meals, for example. All the patients are eating in their rooms. So I can't assess two patients during the meal at once. The patients are also feeling very isolated because of that. And then they tend to eat in their beds more frequently, which isn't ideal for some of them or for anyone, really. Um, So it creates those kinds of problems. Erin's facility is south of Seattle and not that far from Kirkland, an area that's made headlines with its cases of COVID-19. I asked Erin what she would share with someone that's still a bit further away from the virus. I guess just that it's coming. (laughs) That you might think it's not coming, but it's going to. So I think take action now. You know, be prepared and take action now. Kerry Spangler is an educational audiologist. I work for, um, it's called the Summit Educational Service Center, which is located in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. On Thursday, Carrie and I were scheduled to discuss the cochlear implant she received at the end of 2019. And we did. You'll hear that full story on an upcoming episode of ASHA Voices. But at the end of the conversation, I asked her what was happening in the schools where she works. Carrie said that as of last Friday, many schools were wondering... How are we going to do this? A lot of this happened really quickly, and there wasn't a lot of prep time or to think about accessibility for students with hearing loss, whether they use hearing aids or cochlear implants or whether they use sign language or a combination of of the two. And because we don't know how a lot of the teachers are going to be doing their online learning yet, whether it's going to be live or recorded or 
through paper handouts. We, we really don't know. We're trying to prep and, and think ahead about how do we make everything accessible for our kids with hearing loss. Carrie says she's interested in ways teachers can use captioning and how webcams can be used so students can look for speech reading cues on their teachers' faces. We've heard from a governor that we may not be going back to school this year. So I think a lot of our school districts are prepping for long-term online learning. Jasmine Davuti is a school-based SLP in the Los Angeles Unified School District. I spoke with Jasmine on Tuesday evening. We're in our second week now being off of the schools. And I think it's been really tough because a lot of parents have been emailing me and they're like, what's going on? Is there anything we should be doing at home? Unlike SLPs looking to make telepractice work quickly, at the time we spoke, Jasmine says she didn't know if her school district was going to implement telepractice. And if it were to, she didn't know when. As of today, Tuesday, we aren't using telepractice yet, but I have emailed some packets to certain families for some things they could do throughout the day at home. Jasmine says she was given very little notice before the schools closed, so she wasn't able to provide the resources she otherwise might have. I've got a lot of not only gen ed students, but a lot on the alternate curriculums. It would have been nice to know a little bit more ahead of time to get some packets going, especially Mm -hmm. for my AAC users. Jasmine says school is planned to resume on May 1st. And although Jasmine may not be providing speech-language services via telepractice at this time, the ASHA School Services team reports that some school-based SLPs are navigating how to implement telepractice. This includes consideration for the need for confidentiality and examining the logistics of various platforms. Schools, of course, aren't the only ones with questions about telepractice. Those questions also exist with workers and clients in private practice. Hallie Balkin runs Little Sprout Therapy in Bethesda, Maryland. The private practice sends SLPs and OTs into homes and schools. Well, since COVID-19 coronavirus set in, we did have a lot of panic in the community, rightly so, in that people were very nervous about us going into the homes and with our therapists not wanting to expose themselves, some being immunocompromised, we had to take extra precautions immediately. Hallie says her private practice often works with schools and they've quickly transitioned to telepractice services. She has 23 employees who are speech-language pathologists and occupational therapists. She says the sudden transition to telepractice was stressful for some of her employees who are new to that type of service delivery, and the reaction from her clients has varied. Some were willing to make the transition, others less so. I think that it's not all reluctance. I do know that some of our parents have been laid off, and so there are some families who were very open to it until they found out that they lost their job last week. Hallie says she plans to reach back out to those families and look for ways to support them. We're actually a little bit worried that with this break being longer than potentially two weeks for some of the kids, that we're going to see a lot of regression in skills. There is a lot of research that supports that the continuity, you know, even once a week or at least every other week or whatever the case may be, based on that child's case and skills, that continuity is necessary to keep pushing forward and maintain the skills that they've already mastered.
Now to the world of academia. Katie Strong is an assistant professor at Central Michigan University in the Department of Communication Science and Disorders. I spoke with her last week. At that time, it was recently announced that her school would be going online for the rest of the semester. There's a lot to navigate. Things like students who are planning on graduating, second-year graduate students who need to have clinical clock hours and competencies and certain numbers of weeks and internships per hour policies. Also, just transitioning class from being in person to being online. Katie says she feels like she's been tethered to her teleconference line. As a way to maintain normalcy, she's still holding her office hours, but now they're virtual. And while office hours go on, other things have stopped, like data collection and research projects. And Katie says the students, though resilient, are worried. They're scared. There's a lot of unknown. I was talking to some students today. We were meeting to do simulation pre-brief, and I wanted to just talk to how they were doing in addition to the content that we were covering. And they were second-year students, and they wanted to know things like, are we going to be able to graduate? And what if I don't get my clock hours? Or what if I max out on the 75 hours of simulation, but I still need additional clock hours? You know, I just, I, I don't know how to answer them. We've got plenty to be stressed about, and we don't need to be stressed about things that were um, that are, is misinformation or erroneous. And so, this is a time for us to really collectively share what our concerns are and see what we can do to support one another. If you have questions about how your job is changing because of COVID-19, go to ASHA.org. Information regarding COVID-19 in telepractice, coding, and public policy updates are collected in a single page. You'll find setting-specific support for healthcare, schools, and academics. Currently, you can find the link to the collected resources on a banner at the top of ASHA.org. Tammy Altschler is a speech-language pathologist at NYU Langone Medical Center in New York, New York. In addition to being an SLP, she's also a clinical specialist in patient-provider communication, and she's been working with physicians, nurses, and allied health professionals to support patients' communication needs. I spoke with Tammy on Friday night. After reading a few of Tammy's tweets, I saw that the coronavirus was influencing her work in New York. I'll reference those tweets throughout the interview. I asked Tammy about being inside the hospital at this time. It's scary. It's scary because we're seeing our ICUs fill up already. We have a lot of patients who are already intubated. I had a situation this morning where I saw a patient yesterday and then found out today that he was pending test results for COVID. And then I had to wonder, am I asymptomatic? And is it possible that I transmitted the virus to him or did he give it to me somehow? And you go through this back and forth, like, did I give it to him? Did he give it to me? And and you're just kind of anxious. And, you know, it turned out that the result was negative and that's great. But I feel like we're going through this every day, all of our patients, and we're very fearful that we could transmit the virus to our patients. I'd seen Tammy tweet about the communication barrier that surgical masks can create. Because I thought we might be seeing more masks in healthcare environments, I asked Tammy to tell me about how they can work as a communication barrier. When someone wears a mask, number one, you're hiding 
your facial expressions. So a big part of being in a healthcare setting is showing empathy. And when we have these masks on, we're not able to show that we can empathize with the patient or we can identify with something that they're experiencing. So that's number one, it's that nonverbal communication, but also it can limit our speech intelligibility. A lot of the nurses have been telling me since they've been wearing the masks a lot more frequently than they normally do that their patients, especially those who are deaf or hard of hearing, are having some difficulties with understanding what they're saying. And especially in New York, where we have all different languages and accents that uh, people speak, that's another factor that has a role in this. And I've been working with the nurses, especially in the past week, on some strategies that they can use to help them communicate better with the masks on with their patients. And what are some of those strategies? Number one is if they do have hearing aids or glasses, make sure that the patient's actually using them. Very often they're in the room somewhere in a drawer or on the windowsill and not actually on the patient. Um, Or making sure you have the patient's visual attention before you speak with them so they can maybe pick up on other um, facial cues, visual cues that you use. We all use gestures that can help um, complement our speech and just speaking a little more slowly and maybe some more simple language, shorter phrases, those kind of techniques. I saw on your Twitter feed a couple experiences you had that I was hoping you could kind of elaborate, tell me a little bit more about. One, you said that you have a patient who is tricked to vent and uses AAC and his wife was pregnant. Could you tell me a little bit about this patient and that experience? He's been in our hospital for a few weeks now and he was intubated. So I started working with him on AAC while he was intubated. And just this week, he had a trach placed and he's still on the ventilator and not quite ready to try speaking valve. And so he communicates using an alphabet board with partner assisted scanning. So I highlight a row with letters on the alphabet board and he'll indicate when he gets to the letter that he needs to spell out a word. And it's a bit of a lengthy process, but it's been really effective so far. And his wife is pregnant and due very soon. And so we now have a visitor policy at our hospital that we don't allow for any visitors for our adult patients because of the concern with COVID and protecting our patients and also protecting our healthcare providers. And it's really isolating. I think, number one, it's really isolating when someone's unable to speak and then be terrified of their own diagnosis and medical situation and then the fear of COVID that we all have. And now he's alone because his wife or other family members cannot visit. I've been able to visit him and and work with him on using AAC and getting some messages out using FaceTime. So yesterday and today we were able to FaceTime with his wife and they were able to have their own conversation. And today he picked out his baby's name using AAC. It felt a little weird for me to be part of that conversation, but I was glad to help facilitate that. And he won. He got to pick the name. Another tweet, and I'm hoping you could tell it to me almost like a story, but you talk about someone who was near the end of their life and their daughter was quarantined. Mm-hmm. 
Does that sound familiar? Do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? Would you mind telling me that story? I was working last weekend, last Saturday, and I have this woman who's elderly, and she's end of life, and has nothing to do with COVID at all. Because that's the thing: is people still have cancer, people still have strokes, and people still have other conditions that they're battling with. And she she probably has a few weeks, and her daughter cannot visit. Why can't her daughter visit? She lives in an area in New York that has been basically locked down. And so you cannot leave your home at all if you live in, it's in New Rochelle, New York. And so she cannot come and visit her mother in the hospital. I think she's someone who has tested positive recently, so she's self-quarantined. I always like to spend just like an extra minute or two with a patient to see what they might need before I leave the room. And I could just kind of sense that this patient was feeling a little lonely and had a little extra time in my day anyway. So I just kind of ended up pulling a chair and sitting at her bedside. And I love cats. And so does she. And I love jazz. And so does she. And so we just started like listening to some jazz music. And I showed her like a hundred pictures of my cat. (laughs) And it was just great to have that moment with her. And knowing that she's not getting too many of those moments probably with anyone. Near the end of our conversation, I asked Tammy if there's anything else she wanted to share about her experience, about what she's been going through as an SLP, things that she's seen, or what other people might expect. She talked about how she viewed her role as an SLP at this time. We're, we're not on the front line as much as our RNs and MDs, and we're not saving lives, but we are making lives better. And it's very likely that next week I won't be a speech pathologist, and I will be helping our RNs and MDs and running and getting them supplies or answering phones or carrying food trays. And so it's hard because my identity in the hospital is a speech pathologist, but knowing next week I'll probably be a healthcare worker and this is what I signed up for. And I'm proud to be able to do that though. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. For more information about how COVID-19 is affecting CSD professionals, go to blog.asha.org. Next week, the ASHA Leader Live blog will post on school-based SLPs COVID-19 experiences, including with telepractice. Also, look for posts on how the pandemic is affecting audiologists and SLPs in healthcare and academia. Have questions or a story you want to share? Email us at podcast at asha.org or leave a voicemail at 301-296-5804. We may include your comments in an upcoming episode. That's all for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with a conversation about the patient-driven payment model or PDPM. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.